0: The Freedom Pact. What is going on, Freedom Pact? I am your host for today, Louis Frenilcek. Today on the Freedom Pact podcast, we have the absolute legend of the personal development world, that is John Asaraf. You may well recognize John from the blockbuster sensation movie that was. The Secret. John has also built five multi million dollar companies, written two New York Times best selling books, and featured in eight movies, which include, of course, The Secret and Quest for Success. Today, he is the founder and CEO of NeuroGym and one of the world's leading mindset and behavior experts. And today on the podcast, we dive into John's early life, how he met a mentor that changed his life forever by teaching him the difference between being interested and being committed. We also dive into the deeply emotional story of John and his father and how he managed to forgive him years later and what that has done for John as a man. And we also dive into some of Neurogym's work. We talk about creating and breaking habits, forming and changing beliefs, and manipulating the brain through techniques to make it work for you. I truly believe that this podcast, this conversation, is powerful enough to change anybody's life. So I am so excited for you all to hear it today. So without any further ado... John Assaraf, welcome to the Freedom Pact podcast.
1: Thank you, great to be with you.
0: So my co-host and I have been keeping an eye on the work at like Neurogym, and it's, it's absolutely fascinating. And I want to right. dive into some of that research and, and you know those ideas. But just for our audience, I want to talk a bit about your story first, if that's okay. Now, I've watched a lot of interviews of yours. Um, and it's no secret. You are, you're very open about, you know, your childhood um, and, and a sense of shame you felt growing up. Would you mind speaking on these experiences and, and what kind of shame did you feel as a child?
1: Sure. Um, I mean, it all started. I, I didn't know this, but, um, you know, when I was five years old, I moved from where I was born, which was Tel Aviv, Israel, Uh, My parents were trying to get away from, you know, the wars and wanted to raise their three children in a place that was quieter and more peaceful. And so because my mother and father both spoke French, they moved from Israel to Montreal, Canada. And in Montreal, they spoke English and French. And that was when I just started in grade one. And back in those days, there were 50, 60 kids in each classroom. So I was a number in a classroom. And I didn't know the alphabet. I didn't know the language. And so I sat there you know, looked up at the ceiling and the walls for weeks and weeks on end. I just fell behind. And the teachers didn't have a chance to really work with me. So at a very young age, I felt like I wasn't as smart as the other kids. And then when I tried to speak, the kids would make fun of me because I had an accent and, and I didn't know how to pronounce things. And I didn't use the right words. And so I got into a lot of fights and a lot of trouble. And I quickly fell two years behind. By the time I was in grade seven, you know, I was two years behind. I failed grade seven math. I failed grade seven English. The only thing I was good at was sports. And so I didn't feel as smart as the other kids. And um, by the time I was in seventh grade to 10th and 11th grade, I started hanging around with kids who were really good at shoplifting, really good at uh, fighting, really good at doing things that just made me feel like I was part of a group that liked me. And um, but I got into a lot of trouble with the law, I got into a lot of trouble at school, uh, got into massive fights with my mother and father, mostly me being beaten up by my father. And um, and so I developed this low self-image of myself that I wasn't good enough, wasn't smart enough, wasn't worthy, and uh, that I was just a fuck up, uh, to put it bluntly. And that was the first you know, 17 years of my life, 18 years of my life, just a, a kid trying to fit in that didn't fit in.
0: And, you know, it's it's well documented that uh, a lot changed for you when you found a mentor in um, Mr. Brown. How did that come about and what did it do for that young John Aserath?
1: Well, the way it came about is my brother and I have always been close. He's nine years older than I was. And uh, while I was in my, you know, in my early teens, he was traveling around the world as a tennis pro, playing the pro circuit. And when he came back, to Canada. Um, he got a job offer in Toronto, which was about 350 miles or 500 kilometers from where we lived. And I had just gotten into a lot of trouble with the law. And I was either going to be put in jail or, you know, or, um, you know, something was going to happen. And so he said to me, he said, listen, why don't you come down to Toronto, take the train and come down to Toronto and let's talk because you're getting yourself into too much trouble. And there's a man that I want to introduce you to. So I said, sure, I'll, I'll come down and see you. We can have some fun, go to the bars and have a lot of fun. And uh, so I took the train down on a Friday morning and I uh, met him at this uh, restaurant right near the train station. And there was a man by the name of Alan Brown. And just a, a nice man, white hair, um, probably in his you know early 60s, um, dressed well. And um, so he just started asking me questions. And I remember having this scent. Uh, or this sense that this man was like a caring father or grandfather figure to me. And he was very calm and very poised and very, very smart. And he asked me, like, why do you, why are you getting into so much trouble? You seem like a, a nice kid. And I just said, Well, I don't know. I just wanna make some money and I wanna just fit in and have enough money to do stuff. And you know, I'm working in the shipping department of a company right now, making a dollar sixty-five an hour. And I don't, I'm always broke. I'm embarrassed to go with my friends, you know, in their cars. They have money for cars and they have, um, uh, gas money and they have nice clothes. And I always feel like I don't fit in. And, um, so he said, are you aware that these are the choices that you're making? I said, well, I know they're the choices I'm making. He said, but why are you making them? I said, I don't know. And long story short, he said to me, he said, um, would you mind sharing your goals with me? Like, how do you see your life? And I said, well, I'd like to move out of my parents' house. I'd like to buy a car. I'd like to, you know, get an apartment and have enough money to go out and party and have some fun. He says, well, that's, that's all great and basic. He says, well, what are your bigger goals? I didn't have any. I didn't have any bigger goals for my life. I was 19 at the time, and I was just, you know, living a a, a day-by-day, week-by-week existence. And um, so he asked me to sit in the table next to where he and my brother were sitting and I, and he asked me to fill out these forms that was, uh, and this is going to date me, but you're also, you weren't even born at the time. This was 1980, right? And he said to me, he said, uh, sit at this table and fill out these forms. And the form basically says, at what age do you want to retire? How much money do you want to have in the bank? Uh, What kind of lifestyle do you want to have? What kind of car do you want to have? I'm like, what the fuck is this? I'm 19 years old. He's asking me when I want to retire. And so I sat down, I wrote down, I want to retire by the time I'm 45. I want to have $3 million. I want to have a Mercedes Benz. I want to have a beautiful home, blah, 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 blah. I wrote down all this stuff. And um, then he looked at this document and he says, everything that you wrote here is very, very doable. Where'd you get all these ideas? And I told him I got it from this TV show called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. And I got most of those ideas based on what I saw on TV. He says, well, first and foremost, I've achieved every one of those goals, so I know how to do that. He says, "But I'm gonna ask you a question, and the answer to this question will determine whether you will actually achieve everything you wrote down on these pieces of paper or not. And so in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, One question is gonna determine whether I'm gonna achieve all this stuff. And so he says to me, he says, "Um, son, are you interested in achieving these things or are you committed to achieving them? And and, uh, to be honest with you, I had no idea what the difference was. So I asked him, I said, Mr. Brown, what's the difference? And he said, if you're interested, you'll do what's easy and convenient. If you're interested, you'll keep using the stories and excuses of you not being smart enough and you moving, you know, into school and falling two years behind and your parents weren't smart enough and your parents didn't earn a lot of money and and you're going to give me all the stories and excuses and reasons why you can't or won't. He says, but anybody who's committed does whatever it takes. They upgrade their knowledge. They upgrade their skills. They change their beliefs. They change who they think they are so that they line up with what it takes to achieve those goals. And he said, so are you interested? Are you committed? And I said, well, uh, um, I'm committed. And I blurted the words out of my mouth. And a second later, he reached his hand out and he says, in that case, I will be your mentor. And I was like, wow, uh, awesome. What does that mean? (laughs) I had that mentor, I never even heard of the word, right? You know, I'll be your mentor. And so he says, well, if you're committed, I can teach you how to do all the things that you need to do to achieve those goals. So I shook his hand and he said, great. Um, In that case, since you're committed, I need you to move from Montreal to Toronto. And I'm like, Montreal, to Toronto? it's 500 kilometers apart. Um, I said to him, I said, I don't know anybody here except for you and my brother. I don't have an apartment. I don't have a car. I don't have a job. I don't have any money. He goes, that's your story. That's your excuse. But are you interested? Or are you committed? I said, I'm committed, but I, I look, can I move in with you? He says, no, you can't move in with me. He kept reminding me that I was coming up with stories and reasons and excuses. And he said this to me, and this really is a defining moment in my life. He says, All successful people make decisions first, and then they figure out how after they make a decision. So I said, fine. I'll move to Toronto. And my brother says, well, bro, you can stay with me until you get settled. And so I said, awesome. And then Mr. Brown said to me, he says, great. The other thing I want you to do is I want you to enroll in the real estate class that starts on April the fifth, this was like you know the end of March type of thing. This was April the fifth, 1980. I said, "Enroll in school." I fucking hate school. I didn't do well in school. I I had to cheat to get out of high school. A friend of mine gave me all the answers so I can get out of high school. And I started to go on to this story, and he said, "Stop." He says, "You're giving me stories and reasons and excuses again." He says. Are you gonna be committed or aren't you? I said, Mr. Brown, I hate school. I don't have any money to go back to school. He says, well, you haven't made the commitment to do it yet, so you don't need the money and you don't need to figure it out yet. You figure it out after you make the commitment. So I said, fine, how much is it? He says, $500. I said, $500, I have $60 in the bank. He goes, there you go again. You see how fast you go back to your old patterns. And this, by the way, I'm telling you the story in one minute. This happened for 20 minutes. Long story short, I said to fine, I'll go back to school. I'll figure out how to get the money. And my brother said he'd lend me some money. My sister lent me some money. My father lent me some money. I took the $60 that I had. I moved to Toronto two weeks later, got into class on April the 5th, 1980. On June 20th, after going to school every day from 9 to 5 on Monday to Friday, I had my real estate license, and I was 19 years young. And then he hired me to work for his company to sell real estate on commission only, not a nickel of salary, on commission only. And so here I was, this 19-year-old kid in a real estate office with people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, and um, I didn't know the first thing about selling. I didn't know the first thing about real estate other than you know what I learned in class, which is mostly the legalities. And then he started to give me scripts to learn of telephone scripts of calling people that I didn't know, but saying specific things that he knew worked. And so every day I committed to learning those scripts, to reading them, to listening to them, to rehearsing them with another agent in my office. And I got good at these scripts that were unfamiliar to me at first, but I came good at them because I practiced a lot. And in my first year of real estate, I made $30,000 or $31,000, which back then was $5,000, $6,000 more than my father made. So like, wow, this mentor is really teaching me something. And that was the beginning of, you know, having a mentor. That was the beginning of learning some disciplines. That was the beginning of changing my mindset around what it takes to be successful.
0: Looking back now at, um, when you took that job on commission, are you thankful for the fact that there was no salary? It gives you no room for complacency. Did it? Te- did the fact you were on commission in that job after you've risked so much to get there, did that teach you a
1: lot? Yeah, I mean, listen, I would have much preferred not to have the stress or the pressure of eat what you kill, right? It's like you're a hunter, you don't kill, you don't eat. Um, But it also taught me resourcefulness, it taught me resiliency, it taught me one more call every night, you know, it taught me one more, you know, rehearsal, it taught me one more time to freaking practice my craft on the objections that people would give me. It taught me self-reliance, it taught me no matter what, I can do it. Now, here is something really interesting. Back in 1980, I mean, we're in 2020 now, right, 40 years ago. Back in 1980, the interest rates in Canada and the United States were 21%. I didn't know that that was crazy high. Like right now, interest rates are like 1%, 2 3%. I didn't know that that was a very, very, very tough time to be selling. But because I just got on the phones and made 100 phone calls a day, 100, 100, 100, 100, 100, 100, 100, 100, with a script that I practiced, I became good at it. And then I learned some techniques and upgraded my skills so that in the second year, I made $150,000. I was 20 years old. Five times because I learned scripts and I learned the answers to the questions or the objections that people gave us. And so I became relentless at pursuit at doing what I did. So in a way, I'm very, very thankful that it was all me. I had to be responsible for me. And I'm the exact same way today. And I've taught my kids, be a go-giver and a go-getter. And, um, and there are different types of people who sell. There are people who sell, you know, that wait. You know, they wait. They're flea market sellers. They put stuff on the table and they hope somebody's going to walk by and buy it. And then there's the hunters and the hunters figure out how to go and find the business. And that's what I became.
0: I love that story, man. And, and that's why I wanted to jump into your story and then, then just jump straight into the, uh, yeah. the facts and the research. I think there's so much you can learn from, from your story. You've had a crazy life, man. And you know, one of the, one of the recurring stories I hear through the interviews, um, you know, is, is your forgiveness and reconciliation with your father. Man, it, it made me so emotional listening to it. What how important was it for you to do that? And I guess my next question would be, how has that impacted you since and has that changed the way you look at life now?
1: Yeah, so you know, when when I was young, when I got in trouble, which was a lot, I mean, school grades were below below average, I got a whooping. Um, Got caught stealing, line got a whooping, and I don't mean like a you know a, a little slap. I mean a punch, a kick. Uh, I mean get the wind out of you. Um, today, my father would be in prison for child abuse um, because the the beatings were so hard. Now, when I was younger, and even in my early twenties, I was so fucking angry at him for for like. Who the fuck hits their child like that if you love them, right? And um, and I went to a seminar. And during the seminar, the, the person teaching was saying, have you ever asked your father why he did that? I go, no, the fucking prick. Like, who would want to ask their father why they beat them up? He probably beat me up again. And so I had this, he's my father, so I respect him, but he's my father who beats me and I fucking hate him. So I had this this emotion. And so one day, I mustered up the courage to to grow myself. And um, uh, one of the the instructors says, you know, uh, the anger that you have towards your father is like you taking the poison pill, hoping he's going to die. And I'm like, wow, that makes sense. I don't want to keep having that over and over. So long story short, I asked my father one day, like, why did you beat me and my brother? And me was the brunt of it. Uh, He says, what do you mean? I said, why did, you, why did you beat me so badly You know, when, when, when I got in trouble? He goes, because I wanted you to be a good boy. I says, but fathers who love their kids don't beat them. He says, well, my father beat me. All he was doing was repeating what he thought was the behavior to get me to comply, to get me to follow a path of integrity and honesty And so his father beat him and his father whooped him with his belt. And so he did the same to me to try to get me to behave so that it would be for the betterment of me. And so it taught me that I had to have perspective in life, right? And so he did it not to hurt me. He did it to actually help me out of love and care. And as soon as I realized that, I was like, oh, wow, wow. So you did it out of love, not out of hatred, putting me down. So that changed my relationship with him because actually prior to that discussion, he had never told me he loved me or my brother or my sister. And so one of the instructors at this course that I was taking said to me, have you ever told him you love him? And I couldn't remember a time that I did. And I used to speak to him every week, only out of respect. As I was living in Toronto, he was still in Montreal, so only out of respect, hey pops, how you doing? Great, bye. And so I started saying, "Uh, I I love you. Every call, I love you, 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 nothing back, nothing back, nothing back, nothing back. All of a sudden, one day, a year or two later, he goes, I love you too, boy. Called me boy, you know? So like from, from the Jungle Book, boy. So, you know, he says, I love you too, boy. And then he started saying that every call. Then he started telling my sister that. Then he started telling my brother that. And we all would look at each other going, what's going on? And now he's 89. And again, I'm going back, you know, 40 years. And every call is I love you. And every call we've had is I love you. And, and he's become a gentle You know, kind man, you know, he was a terror back then trying to get me to comply and be good. And now he's just a gentle old man that we've helped retire for the last, I don't know, 40 years. And, um, but he gave me perspective. Uh, But he also gave me the opportunity to be the father that I wished he was with my sons who are 25 and 22 now. And I have the most magical, spectacular, loving, caring, kind open relationship with my kids and we talk about everything and I've never hit them. Um, it's always been words of encouragement and compassion and understanding. And so the question is why? And the answer is because I knew the things I did not want to be like with my kids. So who do I have to thank for, for that? Dad, thanks for being the way you were that helped me become who I am.
0: And you know, hopefully that, uh, you know, passes down and down, and you've, you've broken one pattern and, and created a new one. And, I um, so. Thank and you so much.
1: Children, I mean, seeing my children with animals, seeing my children with other children, seeing my children with their younger brother from, um, from another um, um, father, because uh, their mother and I split up 20 years ago and we've, we've been friends, you know, they're just amazing brothers, you know, with just love and care and kindness. Amazing.
0: Thank yeah. you so much for sharing that story, man. I think it's, you know, so many people need to hear it. And um, I did want to touch on that before I got into this other stuff, man. So, sure. beautiful.
1: Thanks for doing your homework.
0: <laughs> I want to talk to you about these, these boards because w- when I was researching you, this is what stuck out to me. Um, the first one being the vision board. You say it can assist in creating neural patterns in the brain, right? What does a vision board look like And how do we make sure we do them effectively?
1: This is Um, what a vision board looks like. This is my exceptional life blueprint. And I start off my exceptional life blueprint that I sign. Right. And then it has my children and family over there. And then stuff that I either have, or like, this is what I'm working on for my seventieth birthday. (laughs) All right. Um, Houses, watches, cars, trip, lifestyle, charity, unique things that I either have, want um, to be, ideas. And so why do I write those up? But I also have, you know, I have my core prayer on here. I have my life's purpose, my guiding principles for my life. I have um, my results which are personal, the story of my life, which is personal, my big why. I'm adding my epitaph to that as well. I have my outer mission, my inner mission. And this is, um, this is my life, this is my life's blueprint. And so I wanted to show it to you because it's here on my desk and I review it and read it every single day and I listen to it because I've recorded it on my iPhone. And so why vision boards? Why, why, does, why does it work? Now, a lot of people have this misconception You know, you put a vision board together, whether it's a digital one, you know, one in a book, one on, you know, boards on your wall, and things magically appear. And that's bullshit. That's just like the furthest thing from the truth that there is. But there is a reason for a vision board. So I'll share with you why. When we're dealing with um, our brain, right, uh, we're dealing with the most complex biocomputer in the universe. And if you had a hundred billion dollars and you tried to create this, you still can't because they've tried. Uh, A trillion dollars still can't because they've tried. So we're dealing with the most sophisticated electromagnetic switching station in the known universe, your brain. And so why create pictures of stuff, of stuff that you want to buy, do, be, have, give, experience? And the answer is because this biocomputer um, randomly has 50, 60, 70, 80,000 thoughts a day positive, negative, constructive, destructive, imagination, fears, worries, doubts, anxiety, stress, uh, sex, everything. And that's all normal. And what happens when you get really, really clear? On what it is that you want it to focus on, whether it's your health, wealth, relationships, career, business, fun, experiences, charity, whatever it is, you are giving this biocomputer an instruction to find the things in the physical world that match with those things that you say you want. So the way our brains work is it's a deletion and distortion organism which means that it deletes or distorts information that isn't needed by you in any given second. So when we get absolutely clear on a vision and we focus on that vision, we're giving our brain an instruction that this is the stuff that I want you to help me find, figure out, learn, have, do, be. So first and foremost, it's as much as it is a focused mechanism, it's also a way for you to instruct your brain, don't give me anything that doesn't match with the stuff that I've already determined that I want you to focus on. And I make a clear distinction between me, the spiritual side of me, and my brain. I have a brain, I have Fingers and hands. I have a heart, lungs, liver, uh, you know, nine systems in my body, but I'm not any of those things. So I have a brain to use. And in the absence of knowing how to use it properly, most people just flounder. So I give my brain the instructions in written, auditory, and visual methods to be able to create patterns that I reinforce to make it easier for my brain to help me find those things. So there's your long winded answer, you know, about why vision boards. But then I also back up all of the things that I want to do or achieve with the action steps required to move me towards those. So I don't just dream, you know, of Ibiza. Um, I figure out how am I going to get there? Mm. That's
0: amazing, man. And, you know, Ever since I heard it, I've been trying to work on ideas for my own and, you know, seeing the blueprint there, that's, uh, you know, really going to help me, uh, create my own. I'm going to be creating my own blueprint this week, I think. Good. Um, now accomplished boards, right? So I, I get why it's important to look yeah. forward and, and look at those goals and what you want in fine detail.
1: Why is it then important to look back? Because it's so easy to look at what's not working. It's so easy for our brain to say, but you failed here, you messed up here, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, you didn't do this right, this, you know, and so our brain is wired to remember the negative a thousand times faster than it is the positive. And that is for survival and safety. So we're biologically wired to remember painful experiences, to remember failures, to remember being embarrassed or ashamed or ridiculed or judged. And so a lot of times, you know, the path to success isn't a straight line up or or across. There's a lot of zigzags, errors, judgment errors, timing, the marketplace, people, lack of judgment, uh, poor strategies, whatever the case is, that I want to have. A way to go back to say, okay, hold on a second here, John. Look at all the things you know. You learned how to walk. You learned how to eat. You learned how to speak three languages. You learned, you know, how to travel on your own. You learned, you look, you did this, learned this, and you want to be able to look at, but look, look at all this stuff that you actually have done great or well. And so you go, yeah. So now all of a sudden, this fear, this uncertainty, this problem doesn't seem that big anymore because you're not out of balance in all the stuff that you've done, you know? Uh, And so when you have an accomplishment board, you start to remember that even the little things in our brain, our brain doesn't differentiate between you making a million dollars this hour, okay? And you feeling great hugging somebody and feeling the love. It doesn't, it doesn't say, well, this was worth this much, and this was worth that much. So any time you can remind yourself of all the stuff that you've done well and accomplished, then you're activating the motivational circuits in your brain, which are connected to your behavioral circuits in your brain or the motor cortex. And you can give yourself this counterbalance of, yeah, but all of this stuff you've done great, and you start to learn that, Um, uh, Success is a process, whether it's success in health or wealth or anything, it's a process. And the process almost is never, you know, A plus B equals C. You can get to that formula, but on the way to getting to the formula for you, there's A, Z, X, Y, I, T, you know, what what goes where. And so the accomplishment board is just a reminder that you're doing okay.
0: One of the things I was dying to ask you because this is something I've probably, you know, not been great at in my life is so the brain will do whatever you did yesterday to keep it alive whether you're feeling happy whether you're feeling sad it's going to repeat those things because that's what's kept you alive up until now including the bad things so how do we go about breaking that cycle of you know bad habits bad self-talk, all these bad traits that you want to break, but your brain is thinking, this is what's kept me alive so far. So I'm going to repeat those habits. I'm going to repeat that self-talk. How do we start to break that cycle?
1: Okay. So let's, let's adjust the premise. Um, let's adjust the premise. So it's not a matter of what you did yesterday. It's not a matter of good or bad in the brain. Mm. So you um, the, what happens is when we, we're born, we weren't born with any beliefs, right? We weren't born with any beliefs of I'm good enough, I'm not good enough, I'm too young, I'm too old, I'm too white, I'm too black. We weren't born with any of those beliefs and we didn't have any habits. We didn't have any habits for anything. And so while we were in our, what we call the imprinting years when we were just, you know, w- modeling or, or seeing what was happening that was being imprinted into our brain, like we weren't born with the ability to see either. You know, light went in through our eyes. So let's say we, you know, somebody, you know, a pen was put in front of us and somebody put a pen in front of us. and We saw this pen, the light from the pen goes into our brain. Then somebody says, pen, you know, pen, pen. And then we touch the pen and somebody says, pen. And, you know, when we touch it, when the signal going through our arm into our brain, these cells are created in our brain. We develop these patterns in our brain. And it starts off with the imprinting years from zero to three or four, then the modeling years four till about, you know, eight, nine, 10. And then the experiential years where we're experiencing stuff and we're formulating these beliefs and perspectives and emotions and habits. So when we were young, you know, our brain is like an open bowl that just stuff is going in there without our ability to say yes or no, good, bad, empowering, disempowering. So we developed these patterns that by the time we're 10, 12 years old, that neuroplasticity switched the part of our brain that's making these patterns by the millions, basically goes from being totally on to totally off and then it, opens, it It turns on every once in a while if you know how to, how to activate it. So you know, if we have a disempowering habit, let's forget about bad habit and good habit. It's one that's disempowering. It's not, it's not the best habit, it's not bad or good. It's like, uh, it's not that concrete. So once the habit is fixed in our striatum or the subconscious mind, the responsibility of our subconscious mind isn't to determine whether this habit is constructive or destructive, good or bad. That's what our conscious mind is for. right? But our conscious brain, which is what I call the Einstein part of the brain, it's responsible for analysis, deductive reasoning, imagining, making decisions. But it doesn't override for a very long period of time, the patterns that are fixed in the subconscious mind, Mm -hmm. which govern 95 to 98% of our behaviors. So first and foremost is to understand that there's two couple different mechanisms at play here. So if a habit is in our subconscious mind and we're aware of it, then the question should be, are there brain-based or evidence-based techniques to deactivate a disempowering habitual pattern, right? So can I deactivate this neuron network from firing automatically because it's conserving energy, which is what our brain does, right? And our brain wants to help maintain homeostasis or our comfort zone. So whatever our habits are, whether it's earning money, our weight, our relationship, our wealth our cher- whatever our habits are and they're not good or bad they just are if we say that there's a habit that i'd like to change because it's not helping me achieve my goals then the question is what do we know about habits right and so what we know about habits there's something called the habit loop in our brain and every habit has got a trigger something that triggers okay that pattern from starting and so we have a trigger we have a behavior that that trigger causes, and then we have the reward, otherwise known as dopamine or maybe serotonin or oxytocin, the reward neurochemicals. So if we want to switch a habit, um, what do we know about the neuroscience of habits is trigger, behavior, reward. And here's what we also know, is if we try to you know, change the trigger, it doesn't work because we've tested it, if we try to change the reward that doesn't work, the only thing that works is if we interrupt the behavior. Now, here is the the holy grail of habits. It takes about 66 days to 365 days to change a habit that replaces an old one. Not seven days, not four days, not 21, not 30, 66 to 365 days. So if you want to change a habit, you can write out what is triggering the behavior. There's always a trigger before the behavior. So you start to become aware of what's triggering it. So is it a person, a place, a time of day, uh, a certain circumstance? Like what is it? Boom, we got that. Okay, now I'm gonna be aware of that. Now the behavior that it elicits is X, right? And that obviously makes me feel good some way, somehow. And so what can I do to interrupt the behavior with either an additional behavior or to replace the old behavior right at that point of the Mm trigger? And if I could do that for a hundred, I call it the 100 day rule. All of my clients, I teach them 100 days. Don't, don't, don't come to me for, you know, if you want a different result, unless you're prepared to give me 100 days, okay, to change the subconscious pattern so that it overrides the old pattern. Mm. So if you think about, you know, how old you are, whether you're 20 years old, 30 years old, 40 or 50, it's that amount of years, right, times 365 days, times 24 hours a day, times 60 minutes per hour that's how many hours you have been reinforcing certain patterns so you're not going to get rid of them okay in one minute or in one day or in seven days so let's change the expectation that we have around change now some habits you know may take two or three or four weeks to change and some may take you a year So if you have been, you know, drinking, smoking, overeating, out of shape for 50 years of your life, you ain't changing that in three weeks. And the three-week pattern overrides 50, 60 years of the shitty pattern. Give me 100 days as the beginning. Give me another 100 days to reinforce. Give me another 100 days to accelerate. Now we can start to see a material change in a habitual pattern. And this is one of the fundamental problems we have in our society. We want fast food, fast fix, fast this, fast that. And our brain can change pretty fast. But if you want the change to last, you have to reinforce.
0: You mentioned this story um in an interview I was watching of yours, and it was that you increased sales in your real estate business by changing the way that your sales team, one, thought about themselves, and two, their habits. Why did that have a knock-on effect in terms of their job performance?
1: So we were stuck at a nice place of $1.2 billion uh, a year in sales. And uh, no matter how many books I got for them, no matter how many training sessions we did, no matter how much we did to upgrade their knowledge or their skills, we were stuck. The people who were making $25,000 a year kept making $25,000. The people who were making fifty dollars to seventy-five dollars kept making the same amount. The people over $100,000 kept making the same amount, no matter how much knowledge or skills we helped them with. And I remembered, you know, some of the work that I did on myself was in order for me to earn more, I had to change my self image to one of the person that was earning more. In order for me to earn more, I had to have the belief that I was good enough, smart enough, worthy enough to earn that amount of money. And just to put into perspective, if you think about this, uh, lottery winners, right? Why is it that 87 to 90% of lottery winners who win millions of pounds or dollars uh, lose the money within three years, all of it. Why is it that um, 90% of those people will tell you winning the money and what happened over the next year, two or three years was the worst thing that ever happened to them? Like why, like why are they saying that? And the answer is because they had so much chaos in their brain around their external world being different than their internal set points around their self-image, their beliefs, their expectations, that it created chaos, and emotional chaos, and physical chaos, and mental chaos, and financial chaos, that it was easier to get rid of everything so that there was a neurological and emotional match that made them feel more comfortable. Mm. So whenever you say, I want to make more money, You're using your conscious brain to make that decision. That's great. That's what it's for. But if you want to make two or three or four or five times more money than you're making right now, but at your subconscious level, there is this part of you that believes you're only worth X number of hours or X number of dollars per hour or week or day or month, then there is going to be cognitive dissonance is what it's called is this chaos in the brain in between where you are and that gap to what you want. And that's what causes emotional uneasiness and mental uneasiness and it causes you, you know, to sabotage your own thinking and your behaviors. So when we wanted to increase our revenues and we saw that we were stuck teaching people skills around selling more, we said, well, what if we did with them what I did with me to go from 30,000 to 150 to 250 to over a million a year Let's increase the size of the vessel, the self-image and the beliefs as we upgrade the knowledge and the skills. And so we took 75 agents over six months, they increased the sales over the same period the year before for those 75 people by $100 million. And then I said, okay, I know this works. Uh, They ended up making more money. I ended up making more money and then we started to do this with as many of our agents that wanted to. I went from 1.2 billion to 2 billion to 3 billion to 4 billion. Then we plateaued at four and a half billion, um, and we were the number one real estate company. Um, and the rest is history.
0: Amazing, man! You talk about this map of reality um, and what we think we look like, and the fact that the brain sort of deletes things that don't fit in with that map. How do you go about breaking or disrupting that map of reality?
1: Um. So we can create um, a new map of reality with our exceptional life blueprint. We can choose the beliefs that we want to have. We can choose the habits that we want. We use a lot of self-discipline and we start to create the new pattern in our brain. let me give you a visual of what this looks like and um i like to use stories to to make points so let's imagine that we're sitting in a movie theater and you're sitting there and you're watching a great movie and all of a sudden there's a few pieces of the movie and you're going like what what the fuck was that that, that was terrible right well if you didn't like what you were seeing you wouldn't go up to the screen and scratch the screen would you no, if you didn't like what you saw on the screen, you'd go up into the projector room, you, you'd get the film, uh, you'd find out who wrote it, who filmed it. You go and talk to them say, I wanna change these pieces over here. You'd re-script it, reshoot it, put the reel back in so that what would show up on the screen would be more to your liking. Mm-hmm. Well, that's exactly how your brain works. You and I don't see what there is to see, we see what our brain is projecting onto the canvas and it deletes and distorts everything else, even though there's an unlimited supply of money, tools, resources, people. But if our brain is deleting and distorting stuff that doesn't match the internal map that we've created, then why not change the map with words, sentences, auditory, visual, behavior, And so how do we do that? Well, uh, affirmations, visualization, meditation, subliminals. Let's use every tool that we can to access where the um, uh, movie is written, the scripts are, and let's change the script. So we all have a money story script. We all have a self-image script of, you know, am I a good lover, a bad lover, a good son, a bad son, a good employee, a bad employee, you know, am I worth this amount or that amount? And all of that story that formulates our identity is nothing more than our past experiences that has formulated that story that we believe, which seems true. Uh, what if we could deliberately evolve our story? What if we, through conscious use of our Einstein brain, choose what we want, and then let's use evidence based methods and technologies to rescript, reshape, imprint a new story into our subconscious mind so that then we see ourselves differently in an abundant universe that we know we live in? And then what if we could back that up with some behaviors that match the new story? And then what if we repeated those behaviors every day so that those behaviors and those beliefs and those habits became part of who we are becoming and then who we are? What if we took our time to deliberately and consciously evolve ourselves and create the biggest, grandest, most powerful version of ourselves, set aside our ego, and do it out of a space of love and kindness and abundance for one and all, uh, where we believe we're significant, and we also believe so is everybody else.
0: John, some of the work you guys are doing at Neurogym is making you know quite a buzz uh, in that community. We've had a few neuroscientists on recently, and you know everyone's talking about this buzz coming out of Neurogym. You've got all these evidence-based techniques like cognitive priming and and, and visualization. Out of all all these techniques that you've developed, these evidence-based techniques, what excites you the most?
1: So what excites me the most right now is where this is all going with artificial intelligence, Hmm. um, virtual and augmented reality, and brain-to-computer interfaces.
0: It's uh, some scary stuff, man.
1: Well, no. Um, so let me let me put it into perspective. Um, do you own any knives in your kitchen? Absolutely. Do you kill anybody with them? Not at all. But some people do, right? Of course. Do you own a car? Yeah. Do you kill anybody with it? No. <laughs> but some people do, right? Of course, yeah is there nuclear capabilities that some countries have that use it for good and in the wrong hands could kill hundreds mm. of millions or billions of us mm. yeah. so where am i you know where i'm going with this yeah, right yeah. so it's not scary stuff when it's used right mm. it's extremely scary stuff when it's not used right so our responsibility is to put frameworks around things so that we lift each other up, we evolve as a human species and race in a better, more kind, loving, compassionate, caring way versus obliterating us off the face of the earth, which we could do a 100 or a million times over right now. So the, the new technologies could be so enhancing, if we use them right and so my vision is that I'm part of the next next generation of people that says here's how we can help you with your paralysis or here's how we can help you not feel like you're a piece of shit or that you have this limiting belief that you're not good enough or smart enough or worthy enough or here's how we can help you feel like you're more than capable enough to live the life of your dreams because that's what you're supposed to be doing mm-hmm. so there are ways uh, if you recall the movie The Matrix, you know, where Neo is sitting in the chair and he's hooked up to this, you know, this machine and into a computer and all of a sudden after a couple of seconds, he goes, wow, I know Kung Fu. Um, if you can get information into the brain, uh, it wires that information, energy information that's information. It's energy information. So, if you can get the right information into the brain, your brain will wire it. So, what if you can give somebody um, a program, a software upgrade that they're confident, loving, caring, kind, and they don't need to hurt anybody?
0: Mm.
1: What if you can help somebody who's got some emotional disorders recalibrate their brain faster and easier than ever before? Mm. Well, that's where we're going. And so we're understanding more about the human brain than ever before. And if we are responsible and we help people evolve, um, that, that's, that's a beautiful thing in my opinion.
0: John, before I jump into the last two questions I have for you, uh, we put on the Instagram story that you were coming on the show. And to be honest, one of the most requested questions we had was people wanted to know what, John's self-talk is like, what language patterns are you using? or are the things you say into yourself?
1: Yeah. Um, the majority of what I say to myself has to do around my self-image. And I still have this little voice in my head that says, I'm not smart enough. This little voice, this old voice from 55 years ago. And I know what activates it. I set big goals. And every time you set a big goal that you're using your Einstein brain for, then the Frankenstein brain comes up and it goes into the memory bank in a nanosecond and it pulls up any information in the memory bank from your history. So I've got 59 years on the planet so far. So from your history in the memory bank, in the safe, This thing percolates up, but are you smart enough? And so because I understand the process of Einstein choosing what I want, big dreams, imagination, Frankenstein's there to do what? To try and keep me in my comfort zone, to protect me just in case. So I hear that little voice, and then I go, in the past, I used to feel like I'm not smart enough but I've proven that I'm more than smart enough to achieve every one of my goals and dreams, even if I don't have the knowledge or the skills right now. So I keep putting stuff in the past. So whenever I hear a disempowering self-talk, negative self-talk that triggers an emotion, I'm aware now and I just reframe it as quickly as possible and let it go. I say, thank you, Frankie. Way to go, Einstein. And now I'm more than smart enough, I'm more than good enough, I'm more than worthy enough to achieve every one of my goals and dreams. And I wouldn't have the goal and dream if I wasn't capable of also bringing it through to fruition. So I consistently am repatterning, aware, let go, aware, let go, aware, let go, recreate or reinforce a new pattern that's an empowering pattern. So I don't try to get rid of negative thoughts or emotions or disempowering ones. I realize it's part of every human being and that's part of the genius part of my brain called the Frankenstein brain. That's what it's supposed to do. And so I give it a lot of credit. I thank it and then I reprogram it so that doesn't happen very often.
0: Two questions left for you, man. Um, are there any books? I mean you must have read plenty of books in your time being in the personal development space. What books stand out to you as, as the core books that you think must remain on this planet? If all books were being wiped out and you got to pick a select food that stay, what are you picking?
1: Um, for certain, you know, Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich was, the, you know, the foundation for a lot of a lot of successful people. Um, so Think and Grow Rich is one. Um, if we look at Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl you know, was in a concentration camp, you know, and um, you know, he had to hide in the toilets where humans were shitting all over the place and pissing all over the place so he wouldn't get killed. And every day, he said, there must be a, pers- uh, a, a reason for all of this suffering that I'm going through and the pain um, you know, that we're all going through. There must be a reason for this. And he framed stuff in a way that kept him alive in the worst of human conditions. So the search within yourself um, around that particular book of what's the meaning here? How do I frame this in a way that I'm empowered that allows me to keep going versus disempowered where I want to end it all? Because a lot of people kill themselves too. Uh, in the concentration camps. So Man's Search for Meanings. So I've got a variety of different books for different reasons. And I've read a, you know, a lot of spiritual stuff, uh, Chop Wood, carry I mean, so much stuff to try and help me understand me better. Um, but those two are, would probably be you know, up there. There's a, a psychopictography that most people never, ever heard of. It's, it's around really using visualization um, which, you know, I, I learned many years ago was a, a, a simulation. So if you simulate in your brain, uh, back then we didn't know what it did to the neural networks in the path. We didn't know any of that. But I learned the art of visualization, you know, playing basketball and closing my eyes and, and free throws and, and doing that and then doing that in business and in health and my body and my relationship and everything that I've done. I've always created that clarity, you know, around, the, you know, what, the, what does it look like upon completion? So, but those, those, you know, two, three books on those, Wallace, three. D, yeah, Wallace D. Waddles wrote a book called, um, Oh, what's his book? Uh, I don't remember the name, but if you type it up, Wallace D. Waddles had a great book also. Um, very, very, uh, not a lot of people know Wallace D. Waddles, you know, from, from the early days. So. Oh.
0: Two of uh, two of my favorite books in in Think and Grow Rich and Man's Search for Meaning in there as well. So I uh, fully endorse. You're on them. the right
1: path, young man.
0: <laughs> the last question I have for you, John, may be difficult for you because you know you've had this roller coaster life. You've had these successes. You've had all these lessons. But if every person on the planet was tuned into the same frequency and you were given the opportunity to deliver just one lesson that you may have learned in your life or one message you think everyone should hear, what would John Asarap's message to the world be?
1: Um, you are God.
0: Amazing. John, thank you so much for your time today, man. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've been a fan of yours for a long time. And um, I've really enjoyed this conversation.
1: Thank you. I've enjoyed you and you being so well prepared. I greatly appreciate that.
0: And that's a wrap on our conversation with John Asaraf. We'll see you back here on the channel next Monday. Until then, please connect with us on social media by searching Freedom Pact on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube and at Freedom Pact Pod on Twitter or visit the website freedompact.co.uk. Please keep sending in your emails and make suggestions for guests you want to hear on the podcast next. We'll do our best to get them for you. I have been your host, Lewis Frenilcek, and this has been the Freedom Pact.